Hello, everybody. We'll be looking at the search for peace and political stability in the post-war world. You guys want to make sure that you do have the PowerPoint open that I provided. And as we go through the uh, the notes, if like I, I wrote down on the Google Classroom, if you want to write notes as we're doing this, that's absolutely fine. I, personally, if I was a student, that's probably what I would be doing, or at least have a notebook out. And as we're going through it, making sure that if I have any questions, I'm writing those down. And if you do have questions, please try to get in contact with me uh, as soon as possible and uh, we can get those questions answered. So the uh, the second slide that we have here says post-war Europe. There's really three things that we want to, uh, to note that's coming out of the post-war world. And if you notice on the slides, we've got three countries and each of those countries have a major question or a major problem, dilemma that they're facing with, and they want to make sure that these questions are answered. So let's go through each of them. Germany. Number one, can we pay? Should we pay? Those are the two questions that really face Germany in the post-World War I world. Of course, here they're talking about the payment for the Treaty of Versailles, the uh, war guilt clause. Can we pay? Do they have, does Germany have anywhere the ability to pay 33 billion in gold over 30 years and should they pay should they perhaps maybe say there's no way we can pay and uh, you're gonna have to figure out on your own uh, the consequences of that being would um, essentially mean that france and belgium or france and other countries would have to be the upholders of the treaty of versailles and that those countries would instantly invade germany Maybe Germany might be playing with fire. They might uh, see what they can get away with. And uh, if they do get away with it, then I guess they know that France and England were maybe never as tough at the, as they assumed that they would be on the Treaty of Versailles. And uh, we'll see if Germany does pay or if they don't pay in a moment. For France, who are they to turn to? So uh, England was in a period of splendid isolationism for the longest time before World War I erupted. And if you remember correctly, England did not have an alliance with France. Yes, they were loosely bound to the treaty, um, excuse me, to the Entente, the Triple Entente. But their reason, their rationale for joining the war was because neutral Belgium had been invaded. It wasn't because France was being invaded. And so England had to, had an agreement with France that basically stated that England had the right to attack or not attack or to join or not to join. And that was completely on England's shoulders. But now that the war is over and England and France have been able to take and take from Germany, France doesn't have a partner. They're kind of stuck in the way that they were when Otto von Bismarck isolated them before the war. Uh, Russia on the other side of Germany, Russia has now gone under a communist revolution. They're probably not going to be joining any capitalist state in the West. Uh, the United States is also in a period of isolationism. So it seems to be for the French that they have no one to turn to. And if they are going to keep the Treaty of Versailles and keep Germany honest to that Treaty of Versailles, it's going to fall upon their shoulders. They will create what is known as the Little Entente. Uh, France, I believe it's France, Belgium, and Czechoslovakia are going to be the keepers of the Treaty of Versailles and hold Germany to its word that it would pay for the damage and all destruction of the First World War. And then uh, if you notice that last bullet point there for France, they only feel that strict implementation of the Treaty of Versailles will work. Well, certainly, 
If France becomes too lackadaisical, if France does not press Germany to have to pay the annual expense, then what was the use? What was the use of even creating the treaty and creating the war go clause? And Germany will realize that maybe France and England are not as serious as they were, and they might take advantage of that. For the last nation, Britain, uh, if you guys remember correctly, of all the groups or all the nations that we had at the Treaty of Versailles, England was really the only one that came to our realization and pretty quick that they had really messed over Germany, something awful. Uh, despite those feelings, it's not that England said to Germany, you can stop paying. It's not that England turned to Germany and said, okay, we took advantage of you. Now we have to find uh, an appropriate treaty. Um, they want to try to move forward. I don't know how you do that after you've ripped Germany a new one, but they want to try to move forward and maybe reestablish some sort of trade, some sort of assistance for Germany to get Germany back on its feet. England and Germany were great trading partners before the war started, and hopefully uh, Britain was looking to get Germany back in that direction. Let's move on to the next slide. This is Germany versus France. So as far as the payments go, uh, there is a one year off as Germany tries to figure out what is going to go on. And that's 1920. So the first year of the actual payment, that 33 billion, uh, comes to 2.5 billion in gold marks. And Germany pays the first year of its reparations, no problem. Germany then asks France for a moratorium, kind of a timeout for three years, that would enable France to figure out where they could find the next payment or even the next payment after that. Um, and when Germany does not make their second payment uh, in 1923 uh, under Raymond Ponticar, the um, French prime minister, French president, uh, France and Belgium are going to invade the upper north western portion of Germany as soon as the Ruhr district and force Germany to have to pay. Well, they're not going to force Germany to have to pay gold or by cash money. But what they're going to force Germany to pay is with their natural resources. They're going to go into a region known as the Saar region. That's S-A-A-R. The French and the Belgians are going to occupy coal mines. They're going to occupy factories. And through that occupa uh, uh, occupation, excuse me, through that occupation, the French are going to take natural resources that are going to be the same monetary equivalent of their 2.5 to 3.3 billion that Germany owes them. And as long as Germany is unable, unwilling, or um, unable to pay, then that's exactly what France is going to do. They'll take German natural resources as compensation. Germany, if you notice the last bullet point, says to pay their expenses, Germany uh, begins pay, uh, printing money uh, leading to hyperinflation. Now, that's not directly related to the invasion. There's a couple of things that take place in between. France and Belgium will invade. They'll take over the Saar region. They'll take over the Ruhr district. They'll be occupying the factories and occupying the coal mines. The coal mine workers and the factory workers of that district and many districts near the area where the invasion took place are going to go on strike. Those strikers are asking the German government eventually to pay whatever money that they're out for not going to the factories, for not showing up at the factory, um, at the coal mines. And what Germany starts to do in order to pay those workers' expenses, they start to print large amounts of German money, Deutsche Marks. 
they end up printing so much in Deutschmarks that they go through, Germany does, go through a period of hyperinflation. So if we click to the next slide, hyperinflation is a rise in the price, or excuse me, inflation is a rise in the price of goods and service in an economy over a period of time. Now, inflation is pretty natural. Inflation happens almost all the time. Usually, even in our modern day and age, we're looking at probably 2% to 3% jump in inflation every year. That's why if you ask yourself, you know, how much does a, a house or how much did a house cost in Whittier back in the 1920s, and you see something ridiculous like 10 grand, and then you think to yourself, wow, $10,000, I can buy anything with $10,000 with the money I have now. Well, it's 10,000 back in the 1920s and every year jumping up by two to three or even more uh, in inflation, eventually you need more money to buy um, sometimes the same amount of goods. Uh, that's why televisions from back in the day cost less than those that are cost today. Every year that goes by, the prices seem to jump up by two or 3%. And that's why it seems that everything gets more and more expensive as the years go by. But hopefully as that's passing us, we're also making more money in the jobs we have to help us pay for that natural inflation. The problem here for Germany is that it's hyperinflation. It's quick inflation. Uh, you're devaluing the cash money that you have to a point where it becomes worthless. Um, you know, the only reason why our $100 bill is worth a $100 bill is worth $100 is because we agree that that's how much it's worth. It's backed by an assumption um, of, of um, monetary um, wealth. Uh, you know, back in the day, it used to be ba based on gold. And then when we leave off the gold standard or we wane ourselves off the gold standard, then we're looking at GDP, gross uh, domestic product, how much is our, our, our country trading and how much is our general worth. And that's what we kind of base our money value off of. Well, with Germany simply printing and printing and printing and printing, they're devaluing their money and they're reducing it simply to paper. If you guys jump down to the next slide, this gives you an indication of the troubles that were going on in Germany, where it says worthless marks. So if you're looking at a loaf of bread in 1922, right, a loaf of bread would have cost for each mark, let's say the, the equivalent of a mark being, let's say, $1. Right? That's why you have the equals $1. In 1922, a German going to buy a loaf of bread would have to pay $160, let's say 160 Deutschmarks, which would be the equivalent of $1. But if we were in Germany, that would look like as if we were paying $160 worth of Deutschmarks. Um, you notice the chart and the horrible spike. A loaf of bread one year later in 1923, that's 200 billion marks. That's $1. So note that the equivalent in American money stays the same. It's $1. But now you have to show up at a German bakery, um, perhaps if you're going to go buy uh, chocolates, perhaps diapers, whatever store you're, you're showing up with, with billions and billions or sometimes maybe even trillions of Deutschmarks. That becomes logistically horrible. How, how does one show up with 200 billion Deutschmarks if you're going to go buy one loaf of bread? Do you back up a truck or do you look like Santa Claus carrying a sack of cash around? There, there are going to be some things that Germany does with their actual cash money as far as printing and placing stamps on them, which I'll show you in just a moment. Um, but there are ways around it. But it becomes really difficult. If you've ever seen political cartoons uh, of the time period, there is one in particular that shows German people that are um, drowning 
under a sea of cash money. The, the idea here is that they're not actually drowning, but that they need so much money in order to survive that times are difficult. And it makes it seem as if they might as well be drowning in cash. If you look at the, uh, the next picture, this is an image. Next slide. This is an image of a woman. Um, this was a collection, a montage, a collection of pictures that were showing a woman basically going through her daily uh, movements, her daily uh, moments of picking up uh, food in the morning and what would that look like as far as going out, finding food, purchasing food, bringing it back home, starting dinner. And this is towards the later point. Uh, she has so much money with her that she is going to start a fire. She's going to start her soup there that she has in her bowl on top of the furnace. And she is going to start the fire by taking all this money, this German money. Once again, there's so much of it. And many of these bills are quite low. You might have a one Deutsche Mark, which we're talking about are, are fractions, literal fractions of a penny that costs nothing for her that she's going to dump inside of her furnace and start the fire. There are stories of Germans that use the money to, uh, to wipe their rear ends as toilet paper. Um, some people, and you know, there's an image you'll see in a moment that are, would decorate their houses with it. If you look at the next slide, uh, you're going to see a, uh, however the 50 is in German million in Deutschmark. And then at the bottom one, you see an ein million in Deutschmark. So as, the years went through and the years went by from 22 to 23 to 24. What the Germans did is they started eventually to destroy the lower amounts of cash that was uh, out there. One Deutschmark, a, a, a two, a two Deutschmark bill or a five Deutschmark bill or a 10 Deutschmark bill because those were so, so little and so insignificant that they would make one bill printed usually on one side that would say 50 million Deutschmarks. So as the years went by, you didn't have to show up as uh, Santa Claus with a sack of cash over your, your back. You could show up with still, not, you know, not to say it's not changing that much, but you would have to go sometimes with bricks of cash. And sometimes that brick of cash would only buy you a limited amount of, of items, maybe an egg or perhaps an egg and a loaf of bread or maybe a small piece of meat, depending on how much it costs. And if you notice in the second image, the Ein Millionen Mark in red stamped over. So this was originally a 1,000 Deutschmark uh, and, you know, uh, before the, the time period. And what the Germans did here is that they took a red uh, stamp and they stamped over it. So instead of having a 1,000 Deutschmark in your hand, you now have a million Deutschmark. Uh, the next image with the guy who looks like Steve Carroll. Um, he is decorating his house from what it looks like with a little bit of paste and some Deutschmark. So instead of wallpapering his house with wallpaper, he's using the cash money, the German Deutschmarks and, uh, to do so. Uh, the next image shows you some of the consequences and the results of what happened in Germany. This is the Berliner Stadtbank or the Berlin State Bank. Um, the bank started to close down when the banks realized and people started to realize that in tough times, you need cash money in order to survive. And there's no, there's no um, credit cards at this time. You know, that, that line of credit's not really going to be extended until the 1950s and 1960s. Um, you need cash money to survive. And sometimes that's a lot of cash money. And so the Berlin State Bank, as well as other banks, realized that if they opened their banks, all the people would withdraw their money and the banks would go bankrupt. So the banks closed, and the image that you see here are of people who have gotten frustrated with their banks, 
started breaking the windows, throwing bricks through the windows in an attempt to say, open up the bank. This is my money, right? I think sometimes we think of, of a bank as a location where we simply just stash cash. We put it in a bank account and that's where it stays. <clears throat> but the banks take our money and they, they use our money to make investments. And that's how you make interest off of the money that you give to the bank. You know, So Germans are giving the Berliner State Bank money. They go out and invest it. They make money for themselves and they make money for us. However, um, here the bank is closing down and saying, no, you cannot have your money uh, because if you take your money, we will have nothing left for our, our bank and our organization and our investments. The next slide also is just uh, there to give you an indication of how expensive life was for even the smallest of things. Sending a letter out, for example, or sending a package. It might be just your next door neighbor or paying a bill that even stamps that were used for letters or for boxes uh, are going to be expensive, you know, 500,000 or 2 million um, or 200 million or 500 million in order to send a letter, depending, you know, if we're talking about within Germany or overseas. The next image is also another consequence. There you have a German man who is, uh, has a sign. It's probably one that has a sign on front and on the back, and it says, Ich suche Arbeit jeder Art which means I will work any job or something of that nature. I'm willing to take any job or work of any kind. Arvats is work, so I'm willing to work, uh, take work of any kind. Um, uh, these same images, of course, we'll see a little bit later when we go over the Great Depression here in the United States. Uh, but just again, once again, a, a visual of the tough times that are befalling the German people. And when we say the German people, if you turn to the next slide, we mean the German people in general. There is no distinguishment when it comes to economic catastrophe, perhaps even the catastrophe that we're currently in with uh, the COVID virus. Rich or poor, everyone is affected by it. So in this slide, this picture, if you notice, there is a, a countertop. There are Germans on the far end of the counter, and they have what looks to be silver candelabras, maybe silver glasses, goblets. And if you notice the way they're dressed and their haircuts, that should give you an indication of that these men are rich. These people are, are pretty wealthy. This might be the upper middle class, uh, people who had made their fortunes in the Industrial Revolution or the period um, from the Industrial Revolution to the First World War period. And they saw their amount of wealth vanish quickly overnight. And they need money. But what they do have here, instead of cash, is they have pieces of silver, perhaps things that have been passed down from one generation to the next that are valuable. And the people on this end, our, our end of the, uh, the image, uh, those are people who are going to be paying. Those are French people who are going to be paying in German marks, right? in German marks, the money necessary in order to buy these, these um, uh, worth, well, I mean, expensive pieces of, of silver or gold. And uh, hopefully those rich people will then eventually have enough money that they can go and survive. They, they still need to buy food. They still need to buy their common items for survival. This is not um, an economic predicament that is going to release the middle class or middle class is not going to be part of. The next image is yet another major consequence of the hyperinflation period in Germany. Here we have a woman and her daughter. Uh, this was taken... This picture was taken after a farm, uh, farmer's market uh, has just closed. Um, the daughter and the mother are going through grapes, or at least the remnant of these grapes. They were on top of a table. Um, 
the vendor of those grapes did not have any that looked good. So he took the table and dumped the tabletop over or turned it over and all of the grapes ended up on the sidewalk. Um, eventually a sweeper would come and sweep it all up and get rid of all the, uh, the trash. But here we have a mother and daughter trying to go through whatever was left over in some filthy, filthy uh, street uh, area on a curb. And if you notice, it's wet and damp and it's probably filled with nastiness. But it, it also shows you to the extreme as far as rich from the previous picture, as well as poor or perhaps the underprivileged trying to do anything possible in order to survive. The next image, once again, showing us what people might do, uh, what they might be willing to do in order to survive. The guy with the hat on, and that is a undercover police officer. The guy with, uh, without the hat, the one who is having his hat inspected by the police officer, is selling cocaine. He has a, a small um, vial of, uh, of cocaine that was under the sweat brim of his hat. And so people, this shows us that during the time period, people were looking to illegally try to make money by whatever means necessary. Uh, that might be drugs. And if you notice the next image, uh, prostitution also skyrocketed in many parts of Germany. Uh, this is specifically at Hamburg. Uh, Hamburg is in the northwest uh, corner of Germany. It is a port city. The guys that you see around that young woman and walking the streets, more than likely, they're not Germans. More than likely, they're French and British. Uh, from England, if you lived in London, you could take a train. There were organizations that did this for you. You could take a train to the coastline. You would get on a ship. You'd cross the English Channel. You would be in Hamburg in a couple hours. You would have your rendezvous with your German prostitutes. And when it was over, um, the company that you were purchasing this vacation from, this uh, opportunity from, would eventually uh, get you back to the dock. From the docks, you would take the ship. The ship would take you back to uh, England. England, you would get on a railway train. You'd be back in London for the next morning. And so if you left from work at night, you'd be back at work the next day after your sexual escapades. If we go to the, uh, the next slide, so after the consequences and the nastiness that the Germans ended up seeing here, um, the next slide says compromise. In 1923, the man that you see there, his name is Gustav Strassmann. He is the new leader of Germany, and he will eventually agree to reparations. He will absolutely say that Germany is willing to pay, but there needs to be a necessity to add on to that, that Germany, uh, somebody has to figure out if Germany can pay, if Germany is going to actually be held up to the treaty obligations, then they have to think about, is this possible? Can Germany actually pay? But what, one of the things that this does, that it shows us is that at least nations are willing to seek compromise. They're willing to hit some sort of moderate ground instead of placing so much weight upon the shoulders of Germany uh, that they're willing to maybe, maybe not remove the weight, but, um, uh, place the weight slowly upon their shoulders. So it's something that Germany, um, uh, a burden that Germany can take on and they're going to be able to, to take on. And so the resolution leads to what it says here, moderate uh, stance between political relations and, and European nations. So there becomes a time where nations are starting to pay more attention to one another, listen uh, to one another. For the, uh, the next slide, says New Hope, 1924 to 1929. Uh, in 1924, Charles G. Dawes develops the Dawes Plan. This was a plan created by the United States to try to take or remove a little bit of the burden 
from Germany and assist Germany in paying the Treaty of Versailles reparations, but while doing so, also help England and France pay off their debts to the United States. If we remember, uh, the United States not only entered the war because of the um, the sinking of the Lusitania, not only because of our relationship with England and France, not only because of the Zimmerman Telegraph and unrestricted submarine warfare, but a fifth reason why we joined was because we made loans to England and France, and we wanted to make sure that those loans would be paid plus interest. Right? That's why we, I mean, an economic reason why we joined the war. So the, the Dawes plan worked kind of awkwardly because it's it kind of works out that the United States is paying itself off. So the U.S. would lend money to Germany at a lower interest rate, right? Something that they could actually pay off and pay off decently well instead of the $33 billion over 30 years of the Treaty of Versailles. But Germany would then take that money and they would pay off France and Britain. So France and Britain said, we won't take German marks. We'll take it in gold. But they would take it in American dollars. So Germany would take the American dollars, give those American dollars to France and England, and then France and England would in turn pay back their debt to the United States, plus interest, of course. So if, if you think about it, the U.S. is paying Germany. Germany is taking that money to pay France and Britain. France and Britain is taking that money, plus interest. So, I mean, all of this has interest in it. So the United States is not only making its money back, but also interest. Germany has to pay interest. France and England will have to pay interest. So it, it makes it seem that we're just kind of shooting the money around in a big circle and it's coming back to us. But with that is interest. If we're looking at the next slide, more hope, 1925, the spirit of Locarno. Here uh, at Locarno, Switzerland, nations agree to commit themselves to peace in Europe. This was supposed to be seen in 1925 as a major step towards what Wilson uh, would agree would be a lasting peace and having nations talk to one another and providing uh, stability amongst nations and a cooperation between nations. It, it was even furthered in 1928 with a Kellogg-Briand Pact that condemned or renounced war as a national policy. So whoever or whatever nation signed the Kellogg-Briand Pact they said that war would never happen. We would renounce it and condemn it. Uh, and that is a policy that we're going to have to take based off of our, our new agreements with nations that surround us. And it does foster optimism in the late 1920s. But the one thing here, if you notice, from 25 to 28, all of this optimism does not, does not know that in 1929, when the stock market crashes on uh, Black Tuesday, that all of this cooperation is going to go for naught, that nations are going to suffer economically. And when nations start to suffer economically, they look for quick answers. And those quick answers um, usually are not cooperation, are not how can I help other countries. They're usually going to be looking for how can my country, how can we, how can my family, how can I and my family survive? And when a push comes to shove, the nations that we're working on some sort of collective peace are going to leave that to try to take care of their own issues and their own problems at home. Um, the next slide, it says, more and more hope in both France and Germany. Sharp political divisions splintered the nations, be it democracy kept strong. You had the arrival not only in Germany in the early 20s of the National Socialist Party, the Nazi Party, 
Uh, the fascists are starting to increase, and not just in Italy, but also in France, you're going to have communists and socialists and social democrats and monarchists, and they're all going to be battling it out in the types of governments in Europe where you're going to have multi-party systems, and you're trying your best to win as a party 51% of the vote. Um, if you don't get 51% of the vote, you create coalition governments. Uh, you try to do the math. Maybe if your uh, political party has 30% and your not rival, but somebody who's kind of like you has 21% combined, you'll make 51% and you take over the government and you rule that way. However, uh, oftentimes these political parties are so splintered and so hating of one another that the government oftentimes collapses and you're back at square one. You have to go and revote and revote and revote. Well, with economic disaster, revoting uh, for your political party to help create stability for the nation, um, that does not provide longevity. And at a time where the Great Depression is going to hit and people are looking for answers, it seems to be that the only answers they're getting is, I don't know from political parties who are unable to create a solid foundation on democracy and move forward. Um, we are going to uh, pause the uh, or stop the recording right now. You're going to be continuing on to the next slide on the Great Depression. You're going to have to gain access to the next um, podcast. All right. Um, enjoy. Welcome, everyone, again. This is part two of our notes on the Great Depression and the post-war world. So we're looking at just that, the Great Depression, life in an unstable world. Let's go ahead and move on to our, our next slide. So the slide says, how did it happen? How did exactly did we get to the Great Depression? And, and looking at three major titles, and we'll go through each, each of these one in, uh, individually. The first one says, the stock market crash of October 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday. Number two, unequal distribution of wealth. And number three, Americans were buying less. So let's look at the first one, the stock market crash, in the next slide. So stock market crash. First of all, let's talk about what stocks are. Um, let's uh, Stocks are, stock options, uh, are pieces of a company that you own. Uh, if a company goes public, have you ever heard that terminology? If a company goes public, what they're doing is that they are selling portions of their business. They're opening up that you would purchase a part of that business. By purchasing, that means that basically you are giving the company money uh, for every stock, you know, you, you know, sometimes you might hear that Disney stock is worth $300 a stock option. It might be penny stocks where a stock is worth, you know, 50 cents or a dollar, whatever the case might be. You are purchasing a piece of that company. The company is taking the money that you're purchasing that piece from. They are going to invest that money in their company. Uh, they are going to grow their company and hopefully with growth and proper investments, the company will become more wealthy. And the people who profit not only are the company, but the people who purchased the stock options, the owners of that company, right? You buy a piece of stock, you are now basically a percentual, a percentual owner of that company. Um, you, Disney Corporation, Sony Corporation, for example, um, pharmaceuticals sometimes are companies online that try to that that are uh, deal with stock and looking to get people to invest in their company so they can use that money to find new cures or whatever the case might be, new medicine. Um, I'll give you an example, maybe one that is relevant today. Let's say we have a pharmaceutical company who's trying to come up with a cure or uh, something to help 
with the uh, COVID-19 virus that we're, uh, we're currently dealing with. And let's say they're a, an unknown company and they're selling their stock. Each stock is $1. And you take $100 and you invest $100 in that company. That company goes on and takes your money and does their research and eventually comes up with something that is quite substantial to slow down or eradicate or stop, whatever the case might be, the COVID virus. Well, everybody wants to purchase from that company. Um, that means that that company is going to become very, very wealthy and in need uh, or people are going to want that company to produce more and more of the vaccine or the, you know, whatever it might, might be, uh, your hundred dollars that you invested, then, you know, a dollar, a, uh, a stock option might jump up to $30 a stock option or a hundred dollars a stock option or $300 a stock option. Now you're looking at, you know, upwards of thousands of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars, depending on how much you invest that you're making off of your initial investment. So, um, I know that sounds all fine and dandy and it makes it seem like uh, playing the stock market is an easy way to, to get cash. It, it can be, it can be, but just as much as you can make money, it's also like gambling, right? As much as, as fast as you made it, as that's as fast as it'll leave you. If you notice the, the actual slide itself says average people brought, uh, bought stocks on margin loans from stockbrokers. So um, average Americans in the 1920s didn't have a lot of cash just lying around, uh, expendable cash. Uh, you know, today we, we might have not only cash in our wallets, but credit or you know, on our phones, we can pay people directly from our, our bank accounts. Uh, but back in the day, you, you needed cash, you needed cash money to survive as we saw in, in Germany. And because people didn't have a lot of it hanging around, they would go to a stockbroker. They would ask the stockbroker for a loan or buy on margin. The stockbroker, let's say, you know, the loan is a hundred bucks. Then you tell, Hey, the, to the stockbroker, take that hundred dollars, play the stock market, if everything increases, you know, it's the second bullet point says if stocks increase, all good, right? Not only you're making money for yourself, but you have money to pay off your loan. So the loan, uh, the stockbroker gets his money back and you make some money off of it. Oh, everyone's happy. Win-win. But if stocks decrease, not only are you out the money, but that also means that uh, the stockbroker is as well. And the stockbroker wants to collect. And so now the stockbroker might be coming for you, maybe your knees, uh, perhaps threatening you uh, that you need to pay them, get that money back. You might have to sell your car, your house, or they might start garnishing your wages. Whatever the case might be, you have to pay off the original loan. In the 1920s, uh, it was uh, this is the, the era of good feeling. All right, this is the uh, uh, what would you call it? The uh, the flapper age and uh, the the roaring 20s. And so it seemed to be. That through the frivolity or frivolity, excuse me, of society, that uh, everybody was making money, especially the wealthy, and it kept increasing and increasing, and increasing, and much like a balloon that was inflating uh, with hot air, um, perhaps that balloon's going to pop. That's going to pop real soon. Okay. Um, on October 29th, nineteen twenty-nine, if we're looking at the next slide, uh, was Black Tuesday. Stocks were unusually high that morning. They had been growing quite a bit as the week went through. Um, but when it comes to stocks, people, you're usually told when you jump into the stock market that you want to buy low and you want to sell high. You want to buy stock when the stocks are as low as possible, a dollar, 50 cents, whatever the case might be. And when the stock jumps up to $1,000 or $2,000 or $10,000, that's when you sell. All right? You buy low, you sell high. If you buy high and sell low, you're out the money. 
right? You're, you're making, you're taking on a big loss. And so with the stocks being so high, naturally, people started selling it. Um, but every time you sell stock, what that does for the stock market is that it sends a message. And the message can be interpreted as nobody has faith in that business, that shop, that um, uh, company that the stock is being sold from. Um, and oftentimes when large amounts of stock are sold in a company, the price of the stock starts to drip, uh, dip down, uh, sometimes slightly, sometimes quite a lot. And so the first people who sold their stock in the early mornings of Tuesday, of Black Tuesday, they made their money back. As the day went through, and I shouldn't really even say day, it was more like hours, minutes to hours went through, people started selling and that drove the stock prices down. And then people started to realize that if they don't sell, they don't sell now, that they're going to be out quite a bit of money. And so people started to panic sell. They started trying to sell as much as possible, as much as possible, and a full panic gripped the uh, stock market and the entire thing crashed. There was no pause button, no uh, ability to close the stock market as there is today. Um, if I believe if the stocks drop by a certain percentage that the stock market actually shuts down, uh, that didn't exist in 1929. And that's part, partly, partly uh, the reason why the full panic was allowed to go for as long as possible. I mean, you have to imagine that uh, Americans that live, let's say, in Los Angeles and were playing the stock market would have to get on a phone in 1929, ring up an operator. That operator would have to contact somebody um, in New York, like operator to operator, and it might go maybe to Kansas City and then from Kansas City to New York. Once they got to New York, then the operator would have to get you onto the stock market. Once you hit the stock market building operator, you'd have to contact the uh, your stockbroker who was on the floor. And then you have to tell the stock market, uh, your stockbroker, to sell your items. And that's going to take a lot of time. So if people are panic, excuse me, panic selling, it's going to take a lot of time for you to contact the people that you need to contact in order to get your, um, your um, stocks to be sold. And for many Americans, that was, it was too, too much. It was too, um, too much time in order to successfully sell their stocks and make a profit off of it. If we go down to the next slide, this is number two, unequal distribution of wealth. If you notice, 5% of Americans held 33% of all U.S. money at the, t uh, at the time. Um, that means that 66% of the United States um, held the, the rest of 95% of the money. And you might say, well, you know, 66% owning 95% of whatever's left over might still be okay. Well, uh, all right, maybe. But when 5% of the wealthiest Americans hold 33%, if you flip it around, that's quite a lot of money and quite a lot of wealth for a limited amount of ultra-wealthy Americans, millionaires, tycoons, whatever you want to call them, uh, to have. And I think it's even more pronounced when you look uh, at the second bullet point where it says a large majority of Americans only made less than $2,000 a year. And that $2,000 a year might be enough for them to live and maybe put something aside, perhaps maybe to buy a car, but you're probably going to be buying a car in 10 or 20 years. It might be enough to put something aside and buy a dress for your child or some toys for the kids, but it's not going to be enough to survive and increase your ability of um, upward movement in class uh, to put money aside and 
and perhaps maybe move out of that small house and buy yourself a larger house. The 2000 is mostly just survival money from year to year. If we're looking at the third reason why the, the stock or the third reason why for the Great Depression, um, we're looking at Americans were buying less. So if you notice, of course, from the previous slide, $2,000 is not a lot to have in order to purchase and survive and, and buy other things for your families or to uh, increase your wealth and look for what's going to be coming in the future as far as uh, maybe investing in stocks or buying a car. It's just enough to survive. So that doesn't that means that Americans don't have expendable cash. We don't have money at the time that we can simply just say, hey, I paid off my rent. I paid my uh, my my credit card bills. I paid off uh, <clears throat> my my mortgage or whatever it might be. I have all these expenses I paid off, and I have three thousand dollars to play with at the end of the month. And so, with the three thousand dollars, I can go on a trip. I can put it in the bank. I can um, buy a new television. They don't have that cash just waiting for them. Um, and so, it's just really survival money. And that being the case, a lot of the items that were being made, new items that were being made at the time were way too expensive. And how could a family, let's say a family of four who could barely survive, end up buying an item that's too expensive? A case in point would be the electric iron. Electric iron came out during this period of time. Right? You have coils on uh, you know, a, uh, an iron, you stick it into uh, a socket, and all of a sudden the coils heat up, and there you have your electric iron. Before that, you had to take coal out, uh, you know, burning embers of coal, and you have to put them underneath this, uh, this, in this handheld iron, right? And the coal would pretty much burn your knuckles as you were trying to iron the, uh, the clothes underneath it. But an electric iron was something that oftentimes many Americans could not, uh, could not purchase. Uh, refrigeration as well, another item that eventually became way too expensive. Uh, washing machines. There's another one. Washing machines became too expensive for the average Americans to to buy. How does a factory that creates an electric iron stay in business when the majority of Americans can't afford that iron? It, it doesn't make any sense. And if you notice the next bullet point, if no one buys, in this case, the electric iron, that factory is not going to make money. And when the factory doesn't make money, the electric iron factory is going to close down. And if the electric iron factory closes down, more Americans, those Americans who worked at the electric uh, iron factory, are now going to be unemployed, which means there's less Americans with less money in their pocket to go around and purchase even more of these horrible, horribly expensive items. And at its highest point, if you're ever looking at a chart on unemployment, and I'll show you one in just a moment, but uh, at its highest point, the United States was at 33% unemployment. I think that is the highest mark in one given month. And of that year, and I believe it's 1932, if I'm not mistaken, 32 or 33, uh, the unemployment was at 20, uh, 25% for the entire year. So that means one out of every four Americans were unemployed. I think as of right now, the way we stand, our employment rate is actually quite phenomenal. I think we're like at 3% or 2%. And when we were going through our Great Recession, just in 2007, 2008, the unemployment was somewhere between seven and nine percent, depending on on who you're calculating in those uh, those numbers. Um, but usually, if you know if if people are unemployed, that makes it even more difficult for anybody to to make money, uh, especially factories are looking to sell new products. Uh, overall points. If we go on to the next slide, the overall points is. 
this is, comes directly from the textbook, is that for the U.S., there was an imbalance between real investment and speculation. Um, how much were the stocks during the stock market crash, how much was the real price of those stocks? That perhaps those stock prices were so inflated that it made people believe that um, there was an increased interest to have to play the stock market, to be involved in the stock market, but maybe the real investment or the real uh, amount of money it took was a lot less. And um, um, the slide into the depression in 1929-1933 is best explained by these two points. There was a lack of leadership in the international economy and poor national economy in almost every country. And as we, as we've noticed uh, today, that um, we are such a combined world when it comes to global affairs, uh, global money. If one nation takes a hit, oftentimes there's a ripple effect and other nations take a hit. And so with the United States after World War I being the economic powerhouse that we were, if we crashed like we did, uh, that's only going to take out a lot of the countries around the world with it. All right, a couple of uh, quotes from the Depression. Let's look at the first one from Carmen Carter. The newspapers were full of news about banks closings, business failing, uh, and people out of work. We were in debt with no way out. And then there's a second one from Thomas Johnston. It says, uh, there was much hardship. Many people sold pencils on the street for one penny. Others were so devastated they committed suicide by jumping out of windows of skyscrapers or of a skyscraper in New York City. The next image shows you the extreme of what some Americans were left with after the Great Depression or at least the stock market crash. Uh, here's an image of a car, very beautiful car. It's probably you know much more expensive than $100, but still, once again, $100 in 1929 is going to be quite a lot of money. It says $100 will buy this car, must have cash, lost all on the stock market. And so much like those Germans, those uh, middle-class Germans were willing to sell some of their prized possessions for money to survive, well, here you go. Whether or not it's, I need to have cash in order to survive, or I need to have cash to pay my loan shark, uh, my stockbroker who loaned me the money on margin to buy the stocks, whatever the case might be, you're going to need money now in order to survive. And the next image is one that we saw, you know, pretty similar to what we have with that German who said, I'll be willing to take any job. And here is unemployment. We'll take any job. Uh, absolutely. You're going to see quite a lot of this here in the United States. The next image shows you outside of a United States employment office. Um, this is the War Manpower Commission. So this is actually showing uh, people soon joining uh, the war, lining up. Uh, but scenes like this are going to be seen everywhere as American men, mostly men, even if you jump to the next slide. Uh, it was really American men at the time period and in Europe who were working outside of the uh, of the home and women were within the home. So if the image that you see where it says free cup coffee and donuts for unemployed, they're all men. Right? It, was, it was a man's world to go out and find a job. Uh, one of the reasons why the Americans decided that the they should get and that the government, the national government, should pay for coffee and donuts for the unemployed was that for each one of these guys that are standing in this line, they could be troublemakers, and they could be troublemakers that are looking to do harm, looking perhaps to steal or murder or do whatever possible to survive, especially when these guys are starving, when they don't have any food in their stomach. A lot of these guys are going to think about the extreme. How far am I willing to go in order to survive? 
And so the American government decided if we can get a, a donut, a cup of coffee, maybe some soup in these soup kitchens for them, at least the the pain uh, might be that's no longer in their stomach might enable them to think correctly and not uh, commit themselves to doing something radical or uh, irrational or uh, irrational and maybe um, you know, break the law. Uh, the next slide shows you a little chart. I think one of the most important things here from 1929 to 1938, uh, excuse me, is to note the two colors of yellow and green. Yellow for Germany and green for the United States. Let's take a moment to look at Germany. Germany in 1928, that's once again the yellow uh, dot, they are at 9% unemployment. They will skyrocket all right, in the years of the early or late 1920s, 1930s, and 1932, their height is at 33 per, uh, 30%. That is just for one year in 1932. Now, if you notice, in 1932 to 1933, they slightly go down. They're maybe at just maybe around 26 or just uh, higher than 25%. 1933 is the year that Adolf Hitler becomes chancellor of Germany. Notice the huge decrease from 1933 to 1934. A lot of that are public works programs, specifically the Autobahn, the first highways of the world, the first highways of Germany. Those were national prod uh, uh, projects that the Nazis wanted to commit the German people to. Uh, most of it propaganda, but definitely uh, it, it worked. It got Germans working and it made people believe that Hitler was the right guy for the job. Then if you notice from 34 to 35, as we get one year away from the start of the Second World War in 1939, uh, here we are. Germany is now at what? 2% to maybe 3% unemployment. Um, that is a huge change. And the world is watching. The world is watching National Socialism and the Nazi Party revolutionize Germany and change it around. And it drew quite a lot of people to admire what the Nazis were doing. And once again, I'm talking about from an economic perspective. Um, scary, of course, in other perspectives, surely. Um, but a lot of people admired it. And a lot of people said, well, why don't we turn in that direction? And uh, the, it's not that the United States wasn't in that direction. If you notice for us in the green, the lime green, in 1928, we were under four, uh, around 4% unemployment. And it actually dropped to about 3% unemployment, maybe a little bit higher than what Germany has in 1938. And after the stock market crash, we increased and increased and increased. And in 1933, we're at 25% just for that year. Around that time is when the New Deal is created. And we'll talk about the New Deal in just a moment. But the New Deal is going to try to provide jobs for Americans. And it does work. If you notice from 1933 to 1937, we're on a steady decline. It's not an instant decline. It's, it's a slow, slow decline. And a lot of people, even through to 37, and notice it jumps up back in 1938, are still going to be uh, unemployed, massive unemployment, all the way through to the eve of World War II. But for us, it really is the Second World War that pulls us out of the Great Depression and gets the boys in uniforms to fight, but also gets uh, men and women in the factories to produce. Um, and then, of course, our victory after the war, um, you know, the 1950s are one of mass production and consumerism here in the United States. Uh, we're going to skip past the global trade. If you could find the, uh, the slide that says President Roosevelt's uh, states, uh, his quote is, this nation or this great nation will endure as it has endured will revive and will prosper. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts uh, to convert retreat into advance. Now, what exactly is Roosevelt meaning here? That we have really nothing to fear. 
that we are basically scared of a boogeyman. And the boogeyman is the unknown. And that Americans are great. Uh, Americans have always gotten past whatever barriers have been set in front of us. And this is just one more barrier. But we're afraid of itself. We're afraid of being afraid. And Americans, instead of taking their money uh, out of the banks and putting it in their um, in their mattresses to hide it, that Americans should have faith in themselves, faith in the government, and take that money and start investing it and building businesses and trying to get Americans to understand that the only way that we're going to move forward is through government assistance. And that does sound like socialism, and that's exactly what this period of time was here in the United States. Uh, according to Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt wanted uh, to reform capitalism in order to preserve it. You'll see that in the next slide. So if you can actually turn to that next slide. Uh, the New Deal to the rescue. All right, there's the goal, to reform capitalism in order to preserve it, which means we're going to become a socialist state for a short while in order to preserve capitalism in the long term. And that the New Deal itself that Roosevelt provides, it creates jobs, it provides financial loans for businesses, it reforms banks and stock markets. For Like I said earlier, the stock market now has like a turnoff switch that if the stocks drop a certain percentage, that the stock market automatically cuts, uh, turns off as a way of stopping a crash from taking place. Uh, banks also reformed. If you guys ever have a chance to go into a bank, there should be an FDI, uh, FDIC uh, insure, uh, insurance plaque somewhere on the counter that says that your bank is insured by the national government and that if your bank goes bankrupt, that the bank will pay you back upwards of $250,000, um, but nothing above that. So let's say if you have $300,000 in a bank account and the bank goes bankrupt, you get two fifty dollars back, $250,000. If you have $10,000, you'll get $10,000 back. But anything above $250,000, the bank will only uh, cut a check for you for Two hundred and fifty, and nothing above that. So, if there's anything that you guys remember from this unit, please make sure in the future, when you have enough money, um, when you have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars, unless it gets reformed in the later future, split your money, put it into two separate banks, not two separate bank accounts, two separate banks. So, if one bank goes bankrupt, they'll pay you out uh, the money. The government will. If the other bank uh, stays in in uh, solid, then you don't you don't have to worry about it. Your your money's protected. Um, a lot of the, even here at, at, at Whittier High School, a lot of the buildings that we have here are part of the WPA, the uh, works program that Roosevelt initiated. Our auditorium is a beautiful 1930s Art Deco work of art that was built because of the WPA program. The auto shop across the street, uh, some of the direct decorations that you see on the old gym as well was all part of the uh, WPA New Deal program. Um, it provided jobs. It didn't provide long jobs. It might be seasonal work, but it definitely provided jobs for Americans in uh, desperate need. If you go down to the uh, the next slide, we're going to try to make this quick. We only have two other slides left. The Scandinavian response. Now, notice it says a, uh, established a flexible and non-revolutionary socialism. So in Scandinavia, here we're looking at Denmark, Sweden, Norway, these areas that at the time were uh, homogeneous as far as the type of people that you would find there. In Denmark, you'd find Danes, and in Norway, you'd find the Norwegians, and in Sweden, you find the Swedish. Uh, they didn't have a big mixture. They were all of the same type of people. And so there was much more of a brotherly connection that I will be willing to sacrifice myself for my fellow Danes, my fellow Swedes, my fellow uh, Norwegians. Um, and so what the government did 
is they committed themselves to socialism. Um, they uh, enacted government intervention. What they would do is they would tax the rich at a high percentage. They would then take that, take that tax money and give it to the people who were the most needy. However, every year that went by, they would tax the rich at a lower amount. Let's say they were taxing the rich at 30% in 1933. 1934, it's going to be at 25%. 1935, it's going to be at 20%. And it's going to be lowered. And what we're doing here with that is that we're not going to tell the rich you're going to pay the high uh, tax expense for the rest of eternity. We're going to tax you higher now to help the the lower class people, the people, working class people. And over time, we're going to limit the amount of taxes on you because society should be on the rebound at that time. And this is usually where you get these views of socialist, um, what is it, uh, socialist concepts that Scandinavian countries run solely on socialism. They are socialistic in in approach, but uh, I think they're also realists when they, uh, they figure out that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. So our interpretation of their socialism is a little bit different from, you know, old world socialism. Uh, in 1929, uh, this was known as the middle way, and it helped uh, Scandinavia stay out of the depression, higher taxes, they increased the deficit in order to create jobs. But like I said, Year by year that went by, the taxes were lowered on the rich, and the amount of support that the government gave to people, whether it was job creation or food or food stamps or whatever uh, support, was limited. All right, so the first year it happened, large amount of taxes, a large amount of help for the people who needed it. The next year, less taxes, less amount of help for the people who needed it. All right, last uh, slide, Britain and France. Uh, Britain changed their focus to developing new industries and increased its production or um, Increase in production meant more home demand and less international demand, and that actually saved them uh, overall from being really dragged down, much like like Japan, for example, during the Great Depression. Um, France was less industrialized. They got hit a little bit later on in the 1930s and 1932. Um, the, the Depression is going to hit France um, because most of their their work was still agricultural, and so um, it really the industrialized countries got hit first. Uh, the last part is probably one of the most important ones, the popular front. France, during the time period, is dealing with potential revolutions. Uh, there are little mini fascist parties or Nazi parties that are developing in France, not just Germany, but in France. And so you have um, right wing or the, the right wing set of government, uh, fascists and Nazis that are looking to come to power in France. Uh, on the opposite side, you have the socialists and the communists that are banding together and create a group known as the popular front. And it's that popular front that oftentimes in France are going to battle. Um, they are beating each other up in an attempt to try to win over France. In the 1930s, right before Hitler comes to power, France is in the middle of a, a, an ideological civil war. And because France is suffering with that civil war, when the Nazis eventually do rearm, France has its own problems that it has to deal with. All right. uh, we're going to stop the notes there. If you guys have any questions, please uh, get to me as soon as possible, and I'll try to answer them as best as possible. All right. Make sure every one of you guys is taken care, and I hope to see you real soon. Bye.